Well, whether you're an athlete, a knitter, or a gardener, being able to visualize what you're actually aiming at is critical. That's why many elite athletes and even, uh, you know, entrepreneurs who are starting out, maybe even authors, engage in practices of visualization. Now, what is visualization? It's really just bringing to your heart and your mind and your imagination the fulfillment of an actual goal that you're pursuing. It's kind of like seeing it as though it's already been accomplished. And the further away the victory, I mean, how many years it is down the road as opposed to days, the more important the visualization. Now, why is visualization so powerful? Because good visualization helps us make decisions today in light of the future goal. You know, the aspiring Olympian who wants to own the podium, when they really see themselves on that podium, they're able to sort of ditch the Pop-Tarts, you know, get better sleep and, and hit the gym hard. A, a young golfer visualizing maybe joining a pro tour, he keeps going back to the driving range. He keeps working on his short game, thinking like a golf pro. Amen, George? Amen. Yes. Maybe entrepreneurs imagine a successful business venture even as they rent their first office space. And uh, maybe tree farmers visualize a profitable forest as they keep planting those spindly trees. I know when I was writing my thesis, my painfully awful thesis that drug on forever, I had to imagine at times putting the finished copy with all the edits done in the mailbox. Yes, we still mailed things back then. And then receiving the bound copy back in the mail. And after sort of going through that exercise of visualizing the final product, then I had to get back to work and keep writing. Visualizing victory helps us make focused and faithful decisions that will lead us toward our goal. Now, it may come as a surprise to you that Jesus actually understands the value of visualizing victory. In fact, he's so committed to it that he peppers the revelation that we've been studying. He peppers the whole letter of revelation with these visions of victory. And each one of them, wherever we find them, they're designed to help us stay faithful in the present. That Jesus actually wants us to visualize victory, the victory that's coming, so that we can faithfully fight today. All through the Revelation, Jesus has been pulling back the curtain, that's the metaphor we've been using, to show us true reality. And the meaning of the apocalypse, of course, you all know by now, is not some disaster, but rather it's the fact that Jesus shows us something that's real about our reality, himself, but what's really going on. And we're shown, in fact, that there's actually... More going on, we realize that Jesus himself is actually present and has won the victory. Over the last couple weeks, Jesus pulled back the curtain in kind of a unique way. He pulled back the curtain on our experience showing that we're in the middle of a war. A war between two opposing sides. Two opposing kingdoms. One that's led by Jesus, and one that's actually led by the devil, pictured as a dragon. And he shows us who's already won the war. 
in order to help us really visualize it, of course, Jesus gave us this mythic large story where the, the devil is this blood-red, uh, monstrous, multi-headed dragon, and he's waging war against Jesus' followers, and he's attempting to crush them through his two primary beasts, which we learned was the Roman emperor and the worship cult of the emperor. Last week, we recognized that while the dragon may still use these two beasts of state and religion today, it's reasonably effective, and times through history he really makes use of them, he also uses other beasts. Beasts, we looked at two of them last week, the beast of comfort, the beast of individualism. But he uses beasts today because his goal is to get us to worship him, or at least to just get us not to worship Jesus. This is an all-out worship war. That's what Jesus shows us in the last few chapters. And there's no prizes for second place. Here's the point. How we respond in our daily lives, how we faithfully love one another, whether or not we actually keep worshiping only Jesus, praying and witnessing and serving and sacrificing as he's called us to do, all of that is going to be determined on how much we actually believe that Jesus has won the victory. And we need a picture of that. We need a vision of that victory. So here's the bottom line for today. I actually want you to write this down. You're actually provided with two spots for notes today. We have got you covered. In the bulletin or on the insert. I want you to write this quote down. Because this is the bottom line for today. The more we visualize victory, the more faithfully we fight. The more we visualize victory, the more faithfully we fight. And that's what Jesus gives us today in Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5, is a vision of victory. So coming out of these two chapters, um, featuring this epic war, this is all tied together, Jesus gives us seven ways that we can visualize victory so we can faithfully fight. We're just going to walk through this short passage today and see what kind of a difference visualizing this victory can make in our daily lives. It's on your insert, or you can follow along in the Bible. Just five verses today. Wow, short stuff. Let's get in it. First way we need to visualize victory is to actually visualize Jesus, the victorious king. Right there in verse 1, we read, Then I looked, so after he'd seen the, the beasts and he'd seen uh, all this crazy stuff going on, then I looked, and there before me was, or there, then I looked, and look, the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Remember, this is immediately following the passage where we're told the followers of the beast had a name also, or a number, the number of the name written on their foreheads. So the contrast is there. This image of the lamb standing on Mount Zion comes directly out of Psalm 2. A psalm that's quoted very frequently in the New Testament, and it's alluded to many times in the Revelation. It's, it's an enthronement psalm that would be often read when a king came into his kingdom. But it pictured God and his anointed Messiah, Jesus. In Psalm 2, the nations are depicted as raging against God and his anointed king. And what's God's response in Psalm 2? He laughs at them. He scoffs them. And then he proceeds to go about installing his king on his holy mountain, Mount Zion. Done. That's God's response. What's Jesus showing us here? The fact that he's already won this war. The war that we're fighting on a daily level, already been won. 
And in the daily grind of life, when the pressure mounts to compromise, when we find ourselves feeling like we're on the losing side, because it sure looks rough around here, Jesus wants us to look at him, standing victorious on God's holy mountain, installed as God's forever king over the whole world. And what's more, when you look at it, you see that we are standing there with him. The 144,000, which we already introduced to back in chapter 7, represents God's holy people. God's people, as we've seen over and over again, who've been sealed by God's Holy Spirit, that God himself has come to live inside of them. And they're this, as we saw in chapter 7, they're this innumerable multitude of people from every nation, every tribe, every language. The symbolic number of 144,000 represents them being a military group. It's a military census. And it's showing that we stand with Jesus, the victorious king, as his holy, victorious army. And the way that we're victorious in this fight is not through a force of arms or violence, but in the same way that Jesus, the lamb, you'll notice, not a lion, but a lamb, was victorious through faithful, sacrificial witness. Remember chapter 11? Only through the sacrificial witness of his people will the world come to know God's loving grace. And we are holy warriors who, instead of taking up arms to kill others, lay down their life willingly so that others can know the grace and love of Jesus. Well, what does this opening visualization do for us? How does it help us? Very simply, the more we visualize our victorious King Jesus, the more faithfully we're going to fight. We're going to serve. We're going to love. We're going to sacrifice. Everything takes on a different perspective when we actually can see Jesus in his victory. That no matter how dark things may look at times, and they do look dark, we know that we're on the winning side. Well, the second way that Jesus wants us to visualize our victory is to visualize our belonging. That's the meaning of the the last half of of verse 1, where we read that these 144,000 holy warriors, as we already heard, had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And we've actually seen this image now pop up a few times in Revelation. There was even a promise to the church in Philadelphia that overcomers would have the, the names of God and his city and all that written on their forehead. This is an image of belonging. It's an image of ownership. God is saying, these are my people. Not in the sense that we're slaves, but that we belong to God's house. We're one of God's people. We're, we're known. We're part And, as I already mentioned, it's the opposite of the mark of the beast, which indicates enslavement. This name represents freedom. It's a name who shows us who we belong to and shows everyone else who we belong to. This is such a marvelous visualization. I love this one. Because the more we know who we belong to, the more we're going to act consistent with our family values. And I think, actually, daily battles are won or lost, depending on how much we know we belong, depending on who we think we belong to. We belong to God, so we will not seek revenge. We belong to God, so we're not going to let anger control us. We belong to Jesus, so we're not going to let addiction rule our appetites. We, we belong to Jesus, so we're not going to speak ill of his kids. 
We belong to the Lamb, so we're not going to judge others harshly. We're not going to choose to just serve ourselves rather than serve others. Who I belong to determines so much of how I live. That's why it's such a vital question. And Jesus, I believe, wants us to visualize our belonging so that we can faithfully fight as one of his own. The third way that Jesus wants us to visualize victory is to visualize our celebration. Verse 2, and then I heard, a, I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and a, a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. This was loud music, folks. No amen at all. Okay. And they, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. Now, now singing a new song which I, I quite enjoy, isn't about just rocking out to the latest worship tune, uh, uh, tune although I, I really do enjoy that. In its original context, new songs were composed to glorify God after winning a particular victory in battle. And what we see here is a victorious army. See, those guys, they're visualizing their victory. Anyone know the story? They're visualizing their victory. Okay. Um, they rep- this represents a victorious army praising God and the Lamb for this amazing victory that they have won over their enemies, over death, over the whole world. And I love this because I think visualizing our celebration in the future deepens our celebration of God's victory today. The more we visualize our victory in Jesus, the more faithfully, the more passionately, We're going to worship our victorious king right now, in our lives, daily, as we gather. We see that Jesus has already won the victory, and we sing of his victory now. Should we try that together? How about this one? Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him and all my love is to him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Yeah! When I sang it by myself earlier, I sang it much, much higher. I really belted it out. Victory in Jesus. That's what we sing about. And that's why gathering, I really believe this. This is why gathering to worship together. Corporate worship. Coming into the same space and lifting our voices and our hands and our eyes and our, you know, everything. Lifting ourselves together to celebrate the victory of Jesus is so important to gather on a regular basis, to sing, to read, to hear, to share, to pray. It's so crucial. Why? Because it's so easy to forget. And one of the reasons why we gather on a regular basis to worship is so that you and I can remember What's really, really true. So that we can remember who has won the victory. Because the more we visualize our victory as we celebrate, the more we, we see what Jesus is doing and what he will do when we get together, 
Well, then, the more faithfully we're able to fight the good fight, when we're scattered throughout the week in homes and in businesses and, 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 and you know, on the, the, the streets and the, and the farms and, and the schools, in your own family, gathering together to celebrate and see who Jesus is and what he's done and where he's taken us is critical for that. The fourth way Jesus shows us is that he wants us to visualize our purity. Using an image that, I will admit, seems a bit strange at first, we're told that these 144,000 holy warriors are, I quote, those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're great. I'm screwed. (laughs) Or some of you, some of you are thinking, I knew it. I just started back to this church thing and I found out my greatest fear all along, which is that God actually does hate sex. See, he pictures this group and he says they're all virgins, which means they're all boring, which means they're, you know, well, I won't go further on. I'm just saying some of you are thinking, oh, my goodness, this is the I'm getting out of here. God loves sex. We talked about this many times. He invented the idea. Think about that next time. Never mind. Um, He invented the idea and he gave it to us as a good gift. And yes, because it's so central to who we are as people, it's also become a great area of pain and damage. An area that God needs to heal. Yes, that's all true. But sex is a gift from God. And that's not what's going on here. So so let's, let's try to unearth it a little bit, understand this. First of all, the image of warriors who didn't, quote, defile themselves with women is a symbol of the faithful warrior who, because he's been sent on a holy mission from God, he has chosen to abstain from sexual intercourse while he's on his military mission. And you can find examples of this in the Old Testament. But more than that, I think, sexual purity was frequently used as a symbol of spiritual faithfulness, in the Old Testament in particular. God and his prophets would often use sexual promiscuity, a.k.a. sleeping around, as a metaphor for God's people when they forsook Yahweh, their deliverer, their God, and began to run after other gods, whether it was Baal or Molech or Asheroth or whatever. And here's the truth. Worshipping other gods, the gods of the lands, the gods of neighbors, what was going on? often did lead God's people into being sexually unfaithful in their marriage. They went together. Actually, when this letter was written to the Revelation, this was a pressure that was being experienced by Christians in that time, that somehow when they were not being faithful to God, they ended up not being faithful in their relationships sexually. And frankly, of course, that still happens today. I cannot tell you how many times I have talked to people who want to give up the Christian faith, not because they've had some intellectual enlightenment, folks. It's because they really want to sleep with somebody, and they know Jesus doesn't like that. Why? Not because Jesus doesn't like sex, but because Jesus loves them and knows how damaging that can be. But at its root, this metaphor that's being used here is actually a symbol of spiritual faithfulness, spiritual purity, that God's people have pledged themselves in marriage to God, and they're remaining exclusively pure and faithful for their betrothed. These are virgins who are awaiting marriage. 
in the metaphor. What's the point of all this? Well, surrounded by so much pressure to compromise, then and now, to mix the worship of Jesus in with the worship of other gods like Caesar or Apollo or maybe comfort, maybe the person you look in the mirror and see, the image of a pure and faithful army of these victorious virgins can inspire them and us to remain faithful and pure and loyal to Jesus. And remember... Many of these Christians, just like many of us, came out of real mess, relational mess, um, sexual trauma, uh, difficulty, worshiping other gods, you know, having been enslaved and experienced all the ugliness that that can be. Many of them, they knew what that was like. But here they're being pictured as virgins. It didn't mean that They'd always, you know, remain squeaky clean. That's not the image of God's people at all. Rather, this purity, this virginity, as it were, spiritually and otherwise, had been given to them as a gift of grace from Jesus Christ himself. As they'd come to know Jesus, as they'd come to experience his forgiveness, as they'd come to understand that when he died on the cross, he actually took all their sin away. And it brought clean. Wiping the slate clean and making them whole. And so now they're being asked to visualize them standing as pure virgins. Isn't that beautiful? What a sign of grace and healing. Visualizing their purity helps us remain loyal today. Well, the fifth way Jesus wants, us, or wants to help us faithfully fight is to visualize our intimacy. Visualize our intimacy. These holy warriors, pure and loyal, are seen to follow the lamb wherever he goes. It's a beautiful image of sheep following their shepherd who is, in fact, a lamb himself. It gets a little confusing at that point. But this visualizes a life of intimate obedience, deep trust, the the kind of relationship where our eyes are always on our master. Watching every move, staying close, keeping up, not because we have to, not because we're afraid, but because we love him, because we know him, because we just want more of him. We want to be with him. We want to stay within the range of the sound of his voice. When I spend time visualizing intimacy with Jesus, it connects my heart to him. And this heart connection, uh, seeing my life in touch with Jesus and, and, and having even the image of me with, with my eyes fixed, following close, it does at least two things for me. First, I become more sensitive to the things in my life which are out of sync with him. You know, when, when I'm following close, when I'm watching him, I, I suddenly realize that attitude I've been carrying, that thought I've been having about that person, this, this priority that I've been focused so much on, this habit. It seems to be demanding more and more of my attention. These are not in sync with who he is. They're, they're, they're hindering me from really attending to him, really following him, really responding to him. And by visualizing my intimacy with the victorious Jesus, I'm empowered by God's spirit to deal with the things in my life that may be distracting me from him or hindering me from following him. But the second way visualizing intimacy affects me is this. I actually become more sensitive to the people that Jesus wants to heal or touch or restore or change. The people that are around me, people that I'm, 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 maybe I'm living with, people that I'm working with, people that I'm engaged with. That intimacy with Jesus creates in me a heart like his heart 
for people. So what does this mean? For me personally, I just want to tell you, I want to live with the kind of intimacy now that I see visualized in this future picture. And that's the challenge for me, that I want to align myself, as it were, in my daily life with this vision of the future. I want to know Jesus in his heart. I want to live within the range of his voice. I want to always be able to hear him when he speaks, when he calls, when he whispers, when he even gives me a little nod of the head. I want to be able to see that and respond. I want to be attentive to him as he leads me to deal with sin. When he calls me to trust him as as I need to give something up. When he calls me to heal the broken, to restore the lost, to just be his child in the situation that he's called me into. The sixth way that Jesus wants us to visualize victory is to visualize our value. We're told something significant at the, toward the end of the, this vision of victory. We're told that these holy warriors were, quote, purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. This isn't just an image of salvation. It does, it does represent that. But it's actually a powerful image of sacrifice. These people were purchased, as we heard way back in chapter 5 of Revelation. They were purchased... And they were paid for, as it were, purchased with the shed blood of the slain lamb. Jesus' sacrifice bought their freedom. They were purchased, as we are told, from every tribe and language and people and nation. They were made to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they were reigning on the earth. And after being purchased, what we hear in this vision is that they're then offered as first fruits to God and to the lamb. Offering the first fruits of a harvest... You know, the stuff that comes in, fresh and new, was a way that faithful Israel, the faithful people of God, would express their thanksgiving to God for his provision in their lives. It would be a statement of trust that more is coming. And it would be offered as a sacrifice. And it's it's one of the undergirding principles of why we would give off the top, even financially. That's kind of rooted in that kind of practice where we say, you know what, I just got paid. I chop 10% or 15% or 20%, whatever it is, off, and I give it away. That's the kind of principle it's rooted in. What's being visualized here, though, is very powerful because we've already seen that these 144,000, back in chapter 7, they had suffered and died under severe persecution. They were, in fact, martyrs for Jesus. Like the lamb had been slaughtered, those who followed the lamb were slaughtered. Again, proving that the holy warriors of Jesus never take up arms to defend themselves, but they willingly lay down their lives so that others, even their oppressors, even their persecutors, can receive the good news of Jesus' love. Now, do you see how visualizing this would impact these Christians who were facing persecution, who were facing suffering, even death, because of their exclusive loyalty to Jesus? Instead of seeing lives that have just been wasted, crushed by Rome, they're able to visualize the value as worthy first fruits who've been purchased by God and the Lamb and are now being offered back to God and the Lamb. And in those times, as you can imagine, when the church watched with horror as their young women, their saintly elders, were dragged down to a local coliseum and were killed for sport because of their loyalty to Jesus. 
What happens here is this vision, it turns everything on its head. A waste? No, not a waste. Lives thrown away? No, lives given as an offering. A valuable offering. A first fruit that's been purchased by God himself and is now being offered as a beautiful, holy sacrifice. Folks, this would have been an apocalypse for these people. What a perspective shift. And can you see the courage and the inspiration that this vision would have given to people who were suffering under that kind of regime? Can you see the kind of difference that would make in your life? There are times when you do what's right, you do what's hard, and you'd wonder if it matters. Sacrifices you make, difficult decisions to be faithful when no one else sees, to love when no one else notices, to stay in, to show up, to give and give and give, unsure whether or not there will ever be a return. This vision shows us something so important. It says, your sacrifice is not wasted. God sees your value. And the sacrifice of your holy life is offered as a valuable offering to the Lamb, to our good God. And visualizing that value as a worthy sacrifice can help us stay faithful in the fight. Well, the seventh way that Jesus wants us to visualize our victory is to visualize our perfection. Now, right at the end of this little vision, we're told something about these guys. We're told that no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. This final statement actually combines two of the image we've already received. The image of the holy warrior and the image of the worthy sacrifice. You see, both holy warriors and worthy sacrifices had to be without defect. Perfect specimens, you could say. And when we're told that no lie was found in their mouths, it hints at the faithfulness of their witness. That these are the kinds of people who have consistently lived, that they're, they're, what they've said with their mouth and the way they've lived with their lives have been a testimony to the one who is faithful and true, Jesus Christ. And being blameless points to the fact that these beautiful people somehow, in the end, were perfect, whole, robust, elite, the best of the best. Now, I get that most of us don't feel that way on an average Tuesday afternoon. And those of us that do have other issues. It's interesting, though, that Jesus gives us this image of victory, the perfect warriors, the perfect sacrifices. And and it's not because we're actually perfect now or actually without defect. It's that in Jesus, in the victory of the Lamb, because of the work of the slain Lamb, Jesus, who achieved final and total victory through his death and resurrection, he is the one who has been able to make us whole again, to heal and restore and purify and complete those who've been brittle and broken and stained that we are actually in the process of being made blameless by the work of God's Holy Spirit in us, that he's healing us up to wholeness. And this vision actually shows us what the final product really looks like. It's beautiful. Isn't he beautiful? I had a hard time coming up with an image to represent blamelessness, but I hope you ladies approve. 
This vision shows us what the Spirit is up to in the dailiness of our lives. And, and, and we're being asked to visualize us standing as specimens of living perfection, standing with the slain lamb. It's quite an image. Can you visualize it? And can you see the difference that this visualization of perfection can make in our lives? See, the more we visualize it, the more faithfully we can fight. The more we visualize our perfection in the future, the more some of the things the Spirit's been asking us to give up, to change, to stop doing, to to, to re-envision, all those things that seem small and seem difficult and maybe even seem petty, we begin to say, oh, I get it. Because this area of my life, it's going to take me off track. And this is what Jesus is calling me toward. And, and somehow I, I now begin to see how this, this small attitude, this resentment, this, this gossipy thing I've been doing, this way I've been, ah, oh, you know, treating my spouse, all these things. Now I see that in light of where Jesus is actually taking me, it doesn't add up. As I visualize that perfection, I begin to deal with my, my, maybe my deceit or my hypocrisy. I deal with any way that I, 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 as the Spirit shows me ways that are just not consistent with who Jesus is actually working hard to take me toward. It's a beautiful thing. Well, that's it. Seven ways that we can visualize victory. The more we visualize victory, the more faithfully we fight. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. That's actually the goal of the letter of Revelation. It's, 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 the, it's the goal as, he, as we gather. He, he wants us to be faithful in the fight today as we, as we live out our lives in light of what he has done, he is doing, and he will do his victory. And he wants to let his victory change our lives, change our perspective, change our relationships, alter the way that we think and live, give, pray, serve. So how are you going to respond today? Maybe there's one of these seven that really struck you. Could it be that you've been struggling to fight the good fight because you, on a daily level, don't really realize or remember that this is a battle Jesus has already won. And you need to visualize the victory of Jesus in your life. Has it been hard for you to make faithful decisions on a daily level because you forget consistently who you belong to? And that remembering whose name has been written on your forehead, remembering who has bought you, can change everything in the way that you live, in, in the determination, in the, in the decision to make decisions that are holy and lead to life. Is it possible that your lack of passion for Jesus is rooted in the fact that you don't really see Jesus as a victorious king and frankly, gathering to celebrate is kind of something I fit in when I want to. Could it be that one of these areas could really help you step into greater levels of faithfulness in your life, in your relationships? Well, what is it for you? Because you see, as I prayed about this, as I prayed about you, I felt strongly that there was someone, and I think more than a few today, who you've been thinking about giving up. You're tired. And maybe not just to throw up your hands and give up, but maybe the kind of giving up that is subtle. It kind of stays hidden. It's called compromise. It's called, I'll still kind of show up and nod my head and kind of, you know, sing all the songs, but my heart is checked out. Some of you have been thinking about giving up. Or, just subtly, you have given up. And what I'd like to ask you to do, I don't do this all the time, but I'd actually like you to close your eyes. 
maybe bend your heads just to respect privacy of other people. I, I'd like to ask who today feels like that's where you've been at. So could you close your eyes and uh, just to respect people as they indicate, because I, I want to pray for you. So if you're here today and you feel like I've been feeling like giving up, I haven't seen a lot of victory and being faithful has been more and more difficult. But this morning, as you've heard Jesus speak, as you've seen this vision that he's unfolded, you've realized, you know, I want to be faithful in this fight. And so you're going to say today, this is what you're saying by raising your hand. You're saying, I have been feeling like giving up, but Lord Jesus, I want to stay in the fight. If that's you, raise your hand. Yeah. Number of hands going up. That's awesome. Anyone else? Good. You can put your hands down. There's eight or nine of you. Put your hands up. And I want to pray for you right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would just fill with your Holy Spirit all those who are here today who have felt like giving up. I pray that you would baptize their imaginations, that they would see you, the victorious King, and us standing with you as pure, holy, blameless people belong to you. And I pray that in this week that follows, there would be moments when they remember who they are, who you are, that they would visualize your victory and faithfully continue to fight. I pray for each one of them today that you would encourage them by your spirit. Amen. Those of you who raise your hands, I encourage you to share that with a friend, a trusted friend. Um, There's power in doing that. Share uh, what you would like to see, share just what you were responding to today. For all of us, we come to the table of communion today. What's communion? It's actually a way that Jesus gave us as his followers to visualize his victory. That's exactly what it is. Over and over again, the bread representing his body, the juice representing his blood. And as we come to the table of communion, we see Jesus, our victorious King, the Lamb on the cross. And as Paul put it, as we take the bread and the juice, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Do you see how that's visualizing his victory in the here and the now? Proclaiming, he died for me. He rose again for me. And now I can live faithfully for him. So I want to invite you as you come today to come and ask Jesus to give you a vision of his victory. Ask him to reveal this vision to your life as you receive his love and his power and his grace and his victory. Allow him to speak into your life in such a way that if there's something off, maybe a relationship with someone else, maybe something you've been holding in your heart, Maybe a resentment that's been building or an unconfessed sin or a lack of forgiveness, whatever it is. As you come and you receive that, my challenge, my urging, my appeal to you is that you would respond to that today. Jesus wants to reveal his victory to us so that we can continue to faithfully fight. And it starts right here. This morning we have four stations available for communion. Two at the front, two at the back. There are gluten-free options at each one. There's even a separate juice cup to dip gluten-free in. That's called going the extra mile from those who love you. 
And so as you come today, the invitation is to anyone to come who is saying, Jesus, I love you and trust you, and I'm coming today to receive all that you have for me. I want to pray, and then those who are serving are going to come, and I'm going to serve them, and then they in turn will serve all of us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the victorious king. And now, in this beautiful, simple act of taking bread and juice, we visualize your victory, declaring you to be the king who died and rose again, who reigns victorious over this world, and has called us to faithfully follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.